Welcome to your Actives Tech Brief podcast. My name is Luca Bertuzzi, your technology editor. This week we take a closer look at the agreement that was found on the AI Act last week. For an overview on all things technology in the EU, sign up to our free newsletter or visit the website reactive.com. This is your Actives Tech Brief podcast, and the last one for this year we will resume in January. Today I'm joined by Chris uh, Shirshak, and four senior fellow at the Irish Council for Civil Liberties, and Philip Acker, chair of the Law and Ethics of the Digital Society at the European New School of Digital Studies. Hello, both. Hi there. Hello, Luca. Thanks for having me. And thank you for joining us. Um, so I would like you to to get your first impressions on the political agreement uh, that was found on the AI Act uh, last week. Felix, do you want to start? Yeah, thank you. Um, so I think everybody was really relieved when we did get a political agreement in the end. Uh, there was some anxiety in the room and in the community. And I think Europe would really have made itself the laughingstock of the world if we didn't have an agreement at all. Now, um, I would tend to think that it's a step in the right direction. Uh, there's some loopholes that still need to be applied, and we're certainly going to talk about them. Uh, one major thing that I would think is really imperative when it comes to the overall narrative, and that's lacking at the moment, is to pair this regulatory approach with a massive positive side for substantial public investment in AI. I think that would be really crucial to tell the world, you know, we're not only regulating, we're also welcoming AI and trying to foster innovation and maintaining digital sovereignty. You know, Norway is pledging 1 billion crowns, uh, UK close to a billion, uh, US making major investments. I think it's time for Europe to step up that as well to create a major EU fund to reinforce AI development and deployment in the EU as well. Uh, that's interesting, Philip, because uh, when the AI Act was first presented, they were saying, oh, but this is just uh, one side of the coin. We're also putting in place uh, some uh, strategies at the national level. And then it's been almost three years and these uh, strategies are, are nowhere to be found. The commission basically dropped the ball on that one. But mostly because the, of the member states, huh? but also they are not, uh, as far as I can see, they're not really pushing. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was thinking of. You know, the white paper had both sides and then it really veered to that regulatory side. That's fine to have, but we need to look at the whole picture, I think. Yeah, I think, I mean, uh, regulation, it's uh, easier to do in Brussels and also has some political gains, whereas investments and industrial policy have much more restraints. Chris, over to you for your first impression. Well, I think the first thing to, of course, emphasize is that it is a political agreement and there's going to be a lot of work that's going to be done. In fact, a lot of work already being done this week at the technical level to fulfill what has been uh, uh, agreed at the political level down to the actual legal text. And a lot of the details and, as Philip mentioned, uh, potential loopholes will actually be found in the legal text. So we'll need to be wary. Uh, but at a high level, I think it's a good thing that there is a political agreement. But now uh, it's important that the legal text also holds up. Right. Um, just to follow up on that, Chris, uh, what are the most dangerous loopholes uh, we should be on the lookout for? 
I think the key ones I'd say is for the first one would be national security exemption, uh, which is broadly exempt and partly because the legal framework that's used for the AI Act doesn't allow for including national security as far as I understand. At least that's the reasoning I heard from lawmakers. But that also means that some of the prohibitions that are put in place, it's unclear how strong the prohibitions they are if member states could use a national security exemptions to use AI systems for pretty much what is prohibited in the AI Act. So that's that's one big one. Another one I'd add is biometric identification. So remote biometric identifications, both real-time and retrospective. Uh, in both cases, there are exceptions uh, when it comes to the prohibition. So law enforcement agencies can use them under certain circumstances. There are going to be certain safeguards that are going to be included. For example, the use of uh, biometric identification systems by law enforcement after a judicial authorization. But even there, when it comes to live, there are additional uh, possibilities for law enforcement agencies to use the uh, these systems and get the authorization post hoc. So there are plenty of these loopholes and the actual legal text we really need to see where they are. Right. And and sorry for uh, jumping from one topic to the other, but the AI Act is so complex that uh, we, we really have to do that. Philip, um, the, the political agreement also included an exemption for open source software. Uh, this would apply to both uh, the model level and the system level. What, what do you think uh, of the of the balance that was struck there? I was not particularly happy with the balance that was struck in the open source field. Let me start by saying that I love open source, just like many people in the AI and tech world more generally. But I think when it comes to really powerful foundation models, open source is really a double-edged sword. Look at the latest release of European hopeful Mistral AI. They just um, released Mistral 8x7b, a powerful model with a cunning new architecture, just two days after the finishing of the trial runs. And what this model does is that it's actually on par with and sometimes even beats ChatGBT on several benchmarks, but it can be downloaded, open source, fully freely available. It comes with standard guardrails, and that's great because it sort of democratizes access to AI. It counters monopolistic tendencies in the AI market. But if you can download the model, there are many studies that show that you can actually remove the safety layers fairly easily. And that's a real public safety concern because there are other studies that show that you can use these models if they don't have the proper guardrails for anything like cyber malware generation or even bio and chemical terrorist uh, uses. So I think the balance is not quite right here. I would have loved to see uh, open source software when it's really powerful say beyond uh, 10 to the 23rd flops or, you know, like in benchmarks equal or above ChatGPT to be uh, treated as a dual use good. And for dual use goods, I think you can't just give them away. You can't buy weapons in the supermarket either um, or weapon um, or, or stuff that you uh, can use for that, but rather you would want to have a controlled and hosted access so that you can have oversight over what's being done with this model, especially for highly capable and I think that should be paired then with 
a, an obligation to also give access to all models, not only open source, for vetted researchers. I think that's a really important uh, part so that we can have proper oversight, not only by probably highly resource constrained authorities, um, but also by the academic uh, general public. If I may just add one thing there, yeah, what course. Philip said. Um, I think um, on the last part, I completely agree with Philip about the access to academics, but also vetted researchers. But on the other aspect, I think our interpretations might be slightly different. So for example, the way the text is currently written, it's not finalized, is that the exemption only applies for a free and open source model uh, in, the, in the case of general purpose AI. And it's unclear to me whether the Mistral's model actually will fulfill that obligation, at least at this point, which means that uh, the exemption may not actually carry over to them at this point. So to whom could it apply? Uh, so it's primarily targeted, for instance, uh, so a lot of researchers, they would definitely benefit from that because they have no intention to commercialize their models. So that's one. Uh, the part that is unclear is how this particular aspect of the exemption would fit into the broader framework of the regulation, which applies to AI systems and models uh, that are placed on the market. Uh, so that particular, this, this link, I think uh, legal scholars will have much more to say on that than I have. So that would be the key. When is the model placed on the market and then the obligations kick in? If I can just, Briefly comment on that. Um, so I think we need to distinguish two things, and, and that's also what Chris highlighted here, I believe. So one is the exemption for research, which is independent of the open source exemption. So um, there is a research exemption, and there the big question is, when does that end? So if you, like for research, like Bjorn Oma did with you know stability, um, he developed this at his chair, and then when does that end? When you put it onto the market, for example, is that still research? So that's one question that we urgently need to answer. And I think um, certainly we must strike a balance between making models available for academic reuse and verification on the one hand, and making sure on the other hand that they're not just taken up by malicious actors to do you know, stuff with the, that we don't want them to do. The second question is about open source. And I fully agree with Chris in that uh, there is much more detailed work to be done on defining what it means for a model to be free and open source. I think that we have seen some in some of the drafts, for example, in Article C4, where uh, there was a an exemption, a more specific exemption for uh, the model constraints that apply to all foundation models. And there, they had much more specific criteria. Um, for example, that you need to um, make available the weights, the model architecture, information on the training data, and also that the that the model um, needs to be a or the users need to be able to to use it, to modify it, and so on and so forth, and to distribute it. So, and then we can actually, if we have those criteria, then we can check whether Mistral's model, Meta's model, whether the Falcon models actually apply or not. I would be hesitant to cast this web of the exemption too broadly, precisely for those public security reasons. And I would tend to think that if you are a company that is building models that are foundation model style, your, your costs in developing these are so high anyways, that the extra amount of just 
having the the whole range of foundation model provisions to kick in, that's negligible. There is a recent study from from the Future Society that I think many of you probably know that shows that if you develop a 10 uh, to the 24 flop model, so basically in the range of ChatGPT, uh, that will usually cost around $60 million. And the compliance costs compare, compared to that are actually quite negligible, around 1%. Right. Since uh, we jumped uh, right into the foundation model uh, discussion, Chris, what is your uh, view on on the overall approach to foundation models, which are actually called uh, general purpose AI models, um, apparently because foundation model is still linked to the to the to machine learning techniques, uh, maybe you can elaborate uh, if you know more on that because that's quite a mysterious uh, distinction for me. Uh, but yeah, this uh, this um, regulation has been quite uh, controversial on the foundation model chapter. Uh, this tiered approach uh, has been criticized as not being very clear or mature, uh, and and the obligations for some are too burdensome. So what do you think of that? Yeah, I mean, I am a bit disappointed with how it has come out at this point uh, because a lot of the obligations uh, generally being applied for uh, general purpose AI in this case are primarily like about transparency obligations. Uh, and there are, in fact, not even risk assessments, uh, cybersecurity checks, uh, and certainly not any third-party assessments that's required. Um, and... There's also the aspect about this tiered approach and the automatic designation is currently placed at uh, 10 par 25 flops, uh, flops, which currently means that only OpenAI's uh, GPT-4. And it's unclear at this point whether uh, Google's Gemini would fall into the same bracket because we don't have the numbers for that. Um, so this is definitely concerning. And as uh, Philip, I think, uh, referred to, I would have definitely preferred a bit lower number. For instance, 10 part 24 would have been much better because many of the models on the market fit in between the 10 part 24, 10 part 25 mark. That said, of course, the commission has the possibility to adopt delegated acts and to also uh, uh, to change this number, but also to actually decide whether other models which do not fulfill this uh, compute threshold might still be categorized as systemic risk. And when it comes to systemic risk, of course, there are additional obligations, more than transparency obligations. So that's better, but again, no third-party assessments uh, required. Uh, there's a possibility, or if the company wishes to, they could use internal or external red teaming, but it's not a necessity that they should use uh, external uh, third-party assessments. So that, that's that's one thing I'd emphasize. Um, yeah, so I think that's that's, the, that's a, the key ones. So it's a bit disappointing, I'd say, considering uh, there were much stronger obligations uh, that were in earlier drafts. At the same time, of course, we need to remind ourselves that uh, uh, politics is also about compromise. There were uh, strong pushbacks from large member states. Um, uh, Philip, over to you now because uh, you have recently written a paper on on the. I'm not sure if you published it yet. On the remaining challenges for uh, GPAI models, uh, would you like to give us some insights on that? Yeah, thank you. So 
I think uh, I, I fully agree with a lot of what Chris said, and particularly I want to highlight the fact that I think in a pragmatic sense, the threshold, the compute threshold is going to be really decisive because we have to acknowledge that at the beginning, the commission is going to have to do a lot of things. And uh, the burden is on the commission if they want to uh, categorize a model as systemic risk that is below the 10 power 25 threshold. And as you know, Chris said, that's basically only GBD4 for sure right now. Gemini, uh, Gemini perhaps, maybe also some future versions of Claude, but you know, you just don't know. And hence, I think in practice, that's going to be quite a hard line. And and it's just strange to see that a lot of the models that we see out there, Bard, ChatGPT, you know, all of them that are being used for a lot of purposes, good and bad, they're not covered. And I mean the the, the general rules on transparency, that's just plainly not enough. That falls behind any of the uh, industry best practices that we're seeing. And again, the if you're developing such a model, it's it's really not too costly to do this, to uh, engage in industry best practices. I would say you want to play Champions League, you know, you have to stick to the Champions League rules. You can't say, hey, but I want to have, you know, uh, 10 persons uh, uh, subbing in and out all the time. So here, same thing here. I think cybersecurity, content moderation, even environmental impact assessments, that would have been something that I would have liked to see and that we're in in previous versions. Of course, there was this pushback, last minute pushback by France, Germany, and Italy. Um, but frankly speaking, I think the, the regulation should not have been derailed by this um, initiative that was ill-timed and, and also from a content perspective, not really convincing. What I think is important going forward is really to see that uh, we we should empower the commission with, uh, so academics and uh, civil society should try to come up with guidelines to show to the commission how they can implement this risk assessment to make sure that models that do pose a systemic risk but fall below this compute threshold can actually be swiftly categorized as systemic risk models. So if you look at, for example, the Mistral models, I think they most likely use much lower compute. Uh, they have a really cunning new architecture with eight expert models that are linked together. Uh, they're all 7B, 7 billion models, um, 7 billion parameter models, so much, much smaller than the 175 billion um, ChatGPT model, which, which still is below the threshold, but it has the same capabilities. So I think that we need to be using much more state-of-the-art benchmarks rather than the compute um, going forward, because I think the the way in which AI uh, and, and foundation models particularly are moving right now is toward more powerful, but much smaller models and model architectures. And so that's uh, uh, an area where really computer scientists and legal scholars needed combined forces to show where they could uh, reach a systemic risk level. Right. Uh, uh, by the way, I also heard noises that there might be some Chinese models um, captured in the top tier. Um, moving away now from the foundation model uh, topic, because I think we could discuss all day about it. Um, Chris, once again, um, politics is about compromise. Uh, the law enforcement chapter was the, the last and perhaps uh, most discussed one. Um, what do you think of, of the final outcome, of course, with the caveat that we still need to see the text? It's a tricky one. 
I think um, the parliament probably should be a bit proud that they at least pushed the council as long as they did. But eventually, of course, they gave in. So that's the concern. Now, the biggest aspects I think we need to be aware of is that whether, for example, the claims in the press release about biometric categorization being fully prohibited and predictive policing being fully prohibited, whether those claims actually hold up in the actual legal text. Because I think the way some of the earlier versions were phrased, the prohibition may not be as strong as we think they are. So that, that's, that's the biggest concern, I'd say, on these things. But of course, then there's the aspect of uh, remote biometric identification, the most well-known one being facial recognition technology in public spaces. Uh, the, that is going to be a massive concern because, uh, as you may know, many member states are waiting just to start or at least use them more legally. Um, and for example, I think my understanding is Irish government just published their national legislation on this particular aspect. Uh, so we could imagine that they were actually just sitting behind waiting for this deal so that they can push this legislation through. So that, that, that's definitely a big concern there. If I can add one thing, um, uh, I fully agree with Chris' analysis. Just want to highlight that um, I think this, this is a really tricky trade-off between allowing certain highly constrained and narrow exceptions that most people would, on the face of it, think are common sense to allow. Like if you're looking for uh, children that have been abducted, like, you know, terrorists on the hunt, uh, something like this. Or even if we think about um, emotion recognition in the workplace, for example, there are very useful ways of, of making use of this. For example, if you look at a whole soccer stadium or a train and you want to capture certain groups that are about to launch an attack that behave aggressively, like hooligans uh, in public transport, which is a massive problem um, in Germany and in other countries uh, probably as well. Uh, so those are... are uh, use cases where I would say it makes sense to use these technologies just for public safety and benefit. But at the same time, if you allow these small exceptions, it means that you also legitimize the installment of a whole surveillance system that can, of course, easily be abused. And so what I would like to see is really a top-notch and um, quite strict enforcement and oversight system that does not rest solely on the member states. Because we all know that there are governments with heavy democratic backsliding in the EU. And I would not want to see, say, the Hungarian uh, national authority policing the Hungarian whatever uh, service, uh, intelligence service that is looking at, um, that is using this technology to look at uh, protesters, for example, that are just exercising their, their peaceful right to protest. I think there we need strong European oversight. This is something that, for as much as I understand, is planned at the moment, but to the extent that there will be exceptions, and I think it's sure to, um, to just uh, assume that there will be, uh, we need really to make sure that this system will be handled at, handled at the European level to prevent this being used for democratic backsliding um, strategies that we really want to prevent in the EU. I would actually add that on the emotion recognition part, 
to the best of our understanding, there is no sufficient scientific underlying to actually that it works. So that's one where regardless of the actual context, it might actually be pseudoscience. So that's something to keep in mind in that one. That's right. That's why I think if you use that, you would have to couple that uh, with with performance thresholds and uh, basically pre-market testing to show that it actually does what it's pretending to do, uh, which is basically something that the high-risk um, AI systems, according to Article 15, have to do anyways. But you're right in pointing out that there's a lot of hype around that and a lot of this is pseudoscience, but there might be something to it that at least it works in certain moments where even if you have a false positive, you know, of uh, a group that is erroneously identified as a hooligan group, a hooligan group, and then it turns out to be, you know, a school class, well, then, you know, the police or whoever arrives there and they're not going to beat up the school class, you know, but... Um, we but hope so, at least. Well, well, yeah, we hope so. <laughs> Um, by the way, if I remember correctly, in previous iteration of the tax, the commission was supposed um, to monitor uh, possible abuses of uh, remote biometric identification. Uh, so let's see if that uh, survives uh, in the final text. And once again, let's... Uh, Let's remind the listeners that uh, the recitals uh, will play a big role in defining everything related to prohibitions, also the open source exemption and, and these uh, law enforcement cases. Uh, but just to wrap up, we, because we're running out of time, uh, I think uh, what, what we into that with our discussion is also you know what uh, what uh, andrea renda once uh, told me on this podcast i believe uh, that the ai act rules are written in the sand uh, this is a very fast moving technology so the governance chapter will be perhaps the most important one in in uh, ensuring that is uh, it is a consequential law and it doesn't uh, remain uh, just uh, just a piece of paper uh, so uh, let, let's do the rounds once again. Uh, uh, what do you think of how the governance architecture uh, has, has been agreed? Also, on what you were saying on the on the threshold for uh, systemic uh, foundation models, we are seeing something very similar with the with the Digital Markets Act, uh, where the cloud uh, sector was not captured by the quantitative threshold. And now we are waiting uh, for some uh, market investigation of the commission, but this is not a priority. They have uh, legal deadlines to comply with. So it's going to take a very long time before anything moves in that regard. Chris, do you want to start? Yeah. So on the governance, um, I would have preferred a stronger union-level governance in addition to national-level authorities. Uh, but I think what we have uh, left with is the AI board at the EU level, which is primarily, I think, kind of like a coordination body. But of course, we have the AI office that would be primarily focusing on the general-purpose AI models and systems. So that's, that's I think, a positive move there. But again, eventually it'll all come down to how well these authorities actually enforce the law. Will they have the capacity, the people, the skills? Uh, so that'll be the tricky one. I'd also add on the aspect of these thresholds and the aspect that the commission could use other criteria to designate companies as uh, or 
models from companies as systemic risk. There's also the concern, for instance, that companies could take the commission to court on those things. We've already seen that with uh, the Digital Services Act, with what Zalando and Amazon are doing. So that's another thing that if the law is not clear and the commission is left at their own to decide these things, then companies could take the commission to court. I think they might uh, take the commission to court in any case. (laughs) Just because it's uh, much more convenient. Yeah, thank you. So I agree. That's not only a risk. I expect to see litigation in this area, absolutely. Um, That's going to be interesting because it's going to be on a lot of technical details, um, and I don't know how judges will be in a good position to resolve these cases. Um, But anyways, um, speaking of the governance architecture, I have the same inclination as Chris saying that, you know, the more you have the European level, I think the better it is simply because less heterogeneity and enforcement also is better for businesses because, you know, you just, you're left with one single point of contact, less uh, discrepancies between the different member states, and also less of a concern of uh, some countries being better resourced than others. I think uh, building up competence and and talent uh, retaining uh, retainment is going to be absolutely crucial in this. And maybe let me just ask one final aspect. I think uh, because it is such a moving target, I think the the delegated acts, but even more so, the standards are going to be crucial. And um, this is where really push comes to shove, and where the regulatory and the technical parts are uh, are interwoven. So I think we need to find a good regimen for for really updating these standards because they are going to do a lot of the groundwork. And I think we're kind of on a, I hope we're kind of on a good track there um, with quite competent people heading these uh, meetings. But that is something we should keep an eye on, um, not only the overall governance architecture, but really the details in the standardization community and make sure that we have not only industry, but also civil society and academia represented there. That is the case to a certain extent right now, but I think that uh, more diversity is never uh, is never wrong in these areas. Right. And, and that the standard should eventually be free and accessible to everyone. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's crazy. I can't even pay for this with my, you know, chair uh, money. So this is absolutely insane to have this, you know, priced uh, so highly that you can't even access them. Yeah. And then let's also remember that um, as part of the governance uh, architecture, there will be a scientific panel advising the AI office. I hope I'll see you both there. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's see. Might be of interest. Philip Acker is the Chair for Law and Ethics of the Digital Society at the European New School of Digital Studies. Chris uh, Shirshak uh, is Enforced Senior Fellow at the Irish Council for Civil Liberties. Thank you both. That's all we got time for this week. Don't forget to sign up to our free Tech Brief newsletter to stay on top of tech news and digital policy developments in the EU and beyond. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast, published on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Amazon Music. This episode was produced with the technical help of Abby Curie. I'm Luca Bertuzzi, and thank you for listening. <laughs>